there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, host of the Live Healthy podcast and editor-in-chief of Live Healthy. Today I'm speaking to David Golding. David is a British expat who went from a career in banking and software engineering to becoming a sober lifestyle coach, but he definitely got there the hard way. And since it's sober October, a month when people all over the world experiment with what it feels like to give up alcohol, we checked in with him to talk about all the things to do with addiction including his own story of struggling with gambling and alcohol. David talks about the benefits of a sober life, turning points, and the reality of people who are struggling with their consumption in a variety of forms. Hi, David. How are you? I'm fine, Anne-Marie. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to see you. too. And I just took notice immediately when I saw Sober.ae, Sober Coaching. I think this, Mm -hmm. I've lived in the UAE for 14 years and I've experienced a lot of problems with alcohol in my life, in my work life. Uh, I think it's a huge problem here. Uh, You only have to go out on a Friday afternoon to run some errands and be, or not anymore, Saturday, I guess it is. And um, yes, be confronted with just some of the rampant drinking that goes on. And, um, you know, we see it on social media. What, I know it's your own personal experience that got you in this, but can you just sort of tell me how you got started? Uh, Oh gosh, of course. Well, I'll I'll try and be brief because we're talking about my life here. You know, it's a life story. Uh, I, I guess um, when I was a boy, I think that's when things, that's where they're rooted really, when I was a child. Uh, so just briefly, I, I grew up in a family where my father was an alcoholic. And interesting, I, I don't think I realized, I didn't, I didn't find out actually until my sister told me when he died, but he was an alcoholic. And I just remember him being very angry, very violent. And we lived in a home that was loud and shouting and there were arguments. And, and I think that as a boy, um, that made me full of fear. I, I was scared and full of fear. Um, and I think it also meant that, well, I'm, I'm not blaming him, but it meant that I felt very different. I think I always felt very different from everybody else. And I would go to school and other children were popular and they, were, they would cope with life. And I just wasn't like that. And in all honesty, when I was 11, I found alcohol. So I'm, I'm really tall. So at 11 years old, I was six foot two. And uh, I used to go to the local pub and uh, I used to get drunk at 11, 12. And um, I mean, this, this is a long time ago, um, but I think I found that as I became a teenager and a young man, that alcohol enabled me to deal with my social anxiety. And I think I've now learned that that was really what I was suffering with, which is that there was a lot of anxiety in me. And because I just didn't know how to fit in everybody else seemed really comfortable yeah. and really gregarious and outgoing and I just wasn't. Um, and I think it became a learned behavior. And for me, that's what addiction really is. It's a learned behavior of how to cope when life um, isn't treating you very well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're talking about 40 years now, you know, this learned behavior becomes something that came with me through a university and my first job. So I used to tell myself um, that I used to work hard and play hard. And, you know, that was the phrase that I would use. So maybe when you go out into the bars and clubs, that's what people think that they're owed or that they're, 
now they can go out and have a big blowout at the weekend. But the trouble was that I was never like other drinkers either. So I could never have one. I was always the person who was at the bar till the very end. Yeah. Um, now people would say, should we go out for a, for a quiet drink? And I would joke and say, well, let's have a quiet drink and then 20 loud ones. Because that was what <laughs> I wanted to do. And, um, and I never had an off button. Yeah. Um, and 20s and 30s and 40s and I had different careers. But I was always drinking. Um, and then I found um, some success in business when I was 42. Um, but the truth was, Anne-Marie, I, I, I'd never really learned how to cope with life, how to cope with feelings that I had. I don't think I could even articulate what feelings were. Yeah. So when I was married, I would say to my wife, um, I would come home and say I was stressed. Now, stress was a word that didn't really expose all of the feelings underneath, which were fear and anxiety and concern and worry and anger and all of those things. Um, so my learned behavior uh, over a long period of time was that when I felt overwhelmed, and that was the word that I used, I was overwhelmed. Uh, I would run away and I would run away into a bottle, a bag and behave mm -hmm. because my journey unfortunately took me into cocaine addiction, gambling addiction. And I just had, you know, I have an addictive personality. So it doesn't matter what it is. I, I could get, uh, if you invited me out tomorrow and said, come on, babe, let's go and try crown green bowling. Oh, I'd get addicted to that. Right, I'd buy right. all the balls and, and I'd be, um, so whether it's crisps, chocolate, and you know, uh, I can be addicted to all sorts of things. So for me, the journey was about learned behavior mm -hmm. and not really having a vernacular to understand who I was as a human being. You know, we don't go to school and we're not taught how to be a human being. You know, it's accidental. Yeah. You know, things come along in our, in our journey and we learn to cope. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, my coping mechanism was to run away. Uh, and specifically, that's what I would do. Uh, until the very end where you know my running away just caused huge problems so you know if we wanted to talk about what addiction is it, it's about the compulsion to to do a behavior or take a substance to make ourselves feel better but you can't stop doing it when you try you just can't stop and then it's insidious and progressive and it gets worse and worse and worse um and my illness, which, which is really what it was, affected all my loved ones and my wife and my children uh, to the point where I was too scared to live and too scared to die. Mm. Um, you know, and at that point, I was lucky. We call it having the gift of desperation. Mm. And I was so, so desperate because I, I just couldn't carry on. Um, but that was a 40-year journey to get to that point. And yeah. how, did, how did you get help for yourself? Okay. Um, well, I joke, actually, which is that where, where I lived in, in Hale in Cheshire, there was a rehab uh, at the end of my road. And I used to joke that God built the rehab at the end of my street for a reason. Um, I first went there in 2009 um, and uh, I was uh, married and it, it, the marriage wasn't going very well. But of course, I wasn't very well. And uh, I went into rehab in 2009. But the truth was that I couldn't be honest at the time. And when we talk about trying to change ourselves and get into recovery, we talk about three things. So if people ask, how do I get clean and sober? The how, the H-O-W, is honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. Well, I couldn't really be totally honest because I didn't admit to having a cocaine problem. I could say that I drank. Right. But I think I went there wanting to drink like a gentleman. You know, the, the truth was that I think all alcoholics are really searching for how do I drink like a normal person? Um, but of course, I, I never can. I, it's impossible for me. 
You know, as I said, I just can't have one. So I went there in 2009. It was unsuccessful. I, I tried to stay clean and sober for about six months. But the truth was, I didn't really put any work in. Um, and that's what we have to do. You know, I have to really surrender. Surrender that I, I'm broken. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I then went missing for another five years. Um, and of course, what that means is that my addiction and that five years was just chaos and a car crash. And it affected my loved ones, and, and it was horrific. Uh, it led me to attempting suicide. Uh, it meant that I, we, we talk about the yets, by the way, when we go to a meeting. So if you're sat next to somebody in, in early recovery, and somebody else is sharing a story, and this guy saying, well, I've been arrested, and I've got divorced, and I've lost my business and my home. And you say to yourself, well, well I haven't done that yet. I haven't been arrested yet. And I haven't got divorced yet. So I'm not as bad as that. Right. And that's that's the sort of thinking that I had at the beginning. So they're called the yets. And we say that, look, if you stick around long enough, you'll tick off all the yets. Um, and that was what I had to do because I, I couldn't be told I'm somebody who had to go on the journey of experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My experience was that I really tried and tried and tried. And then when everything had failed and I was completely broken, then I went back to rehab and said, look, I, I'm done I, I'm absolutely the gift of desperation. And at that point, I give in. So the, the surrender moment, I think, actually, is that when you accept that you're willing to go to any lengths, tell me what I have to do, and I will do it. Now, luckily, they don't say, oh, go and move to Iceland and, and learn Icelandic. You know, it's not that bad. Yeah. It's uh, get, a, get a book, yeah. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, and find a sponsor, go to some meetings, and go on the journey of change. Uh, so eventually, I was fortunate enough that, you know, there's this wonderful fellowship of, of people who help you. Um, and I think that for all my life, um, there was malevolence and, and people that betrayed me and there was pain and misery. But that was a lot of that was about my attitude. And I think I used to pray to God. I used to do the addict's prayer, which is, God, please make this end. Please make this stop. <clears throat> In fact, sometimes it was, God, I want to die. And then sometimes when I was close to death, God, I want to stay alive. So that's called the addict's prayer. So even if people aren't religious, we might say the addict's prayer. Yeah. And I think I used to want to believe in the upward spiral of humanity, that there were good and lovely people out there. And actually, they were always hidden in plain sight. They were all in the rooms of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous and Gamblers Anonymous. And actually, those people exist. Mm -hmm. And now I spend my time with those people because they're good, lovely, helpful, kind, positive people. And actually what I was always searching for was always there. Oh. It was something that I rejected. It was something that I really rejected. And actually, um, you know, we're all human beings, by the way. You know, not everyone in the rooms of AA are well, mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a positivity. You know, so I say about myself that most of the time I'm mostly okay now, you know, because right. I'm a human being. Right. I'm a human being and, and stuff happens. And I'm not perfect, I'm not a saint, but um, you know, in, in today's world where I've learned coping mechanisms, where I've realized that when something is overwhelming me and some, something's bad, running away and having a drink is not the solution. Right. You know, it's just not, it's just not gonna help. And, I, and I've learned that. And um, so, yeah, I was fortunate enough that I could ask for help and boy, oh boy, there was lots of help available. That's so lovely that you say that about the rooms and searching for those people, because I know when I moved here, I was utterly unprepared. 
I've also been someone who doesn't have an off switch, but very much on mm. the weekends, but it, it, it's, it harmed me over the years. You know, I remember being sick. I had, I had a childhood similar to yours, not alcohol, but tumultuous. And I remember being 16 mm-hmm. and being upset about a boy. And I remember saying, I can't wait to drink on Friday night. Like that's like yeah. such a pivotal thing. Right. Cause why was I saying that? I feel terrible. I can't wait to get rid of this feeling. I can't deal with this. But when I moved absolutely. here in 2008, just absolutely unprepared for the level of drinking that I would encounter in my job and two, three times a week meeting British people who drink more than anyone <laughs> ever, <laughs> I would say. And I was I, so excited. I think they do. Yeah. I was so excited. I was saying to my friends, I've met my people. Like we go out all the time. It's great. And, but those were the unhappiest years in the UAE for me. And what you're saying about, you know, when I would think about people who don't drink, I think it's so boring and whatever. And now the life I have where the people I hang around with, it's, it's very similar to that. It's like, yeah, those people who don't need to go party to, to brunch or to Friday night, they're actually really beautiful people and it's not boring and it's peaceful. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other thing is that, you know, there's no consequences. There's no chaos. You know, I would go out and, and there would be a guarantee. It's like spilling the roulette, roulette wheel. Where's it going to land tonight? Am I going to get into a fight, have an argument? Am I going to fall over um, and get something I call UBIs, which are unexplained beer injuries? Right. So you come home and you wake up in the morning, you've got, you're covered in bruises. And you think, how the hell did that happen? Yeah. Um, you know, and if, if I think if somebody's beginning to suffer lots of consequences with their drinking, and, and, you know, we, we might deny that and we might say, oh, it's okay. But I think that these are, these are warning signals. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, other, the other truth, Marie, is, is that, you know, I think I found out later in life, I don't need to be drunk to dance on a table. Mm. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still a crazy idiot and, and I'm fun and I like to do these things, but I don't need to be drunk to do that. Yeah. I, think, I think I'd learned as a teenager and as a young man that I needed alcohol to take me out of myself because I was so scared and introverted and anxious. But actually, you know, the balance of life comes in, in relearning your thinking and changing your thinking. And that, that's, that's what I, I do when I'm working with my clients because um, getting into recovery and changing your life, it's only 1% about putting down the, 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 the alcohol. It's 99% about changing who you are. And, well, and this, is, this is recovery is. Yeah. When you, I mean, when you face the rest of your life being present to all the, whatever happens, the pain, that is very, very difficult, right? Like when you are going through something really, really difficult and you, you are like, I, I don't want to drink through this. I wish I had some sort of pill, something to take the edge off this, but there's nothing. How do you, how do you help people through that? Because those things are going to happen and it's so raw. Absolutely. Gosh, you know, let's be honest here you know life's tough Mm. you know I think I thought that life would be easy or that I was deserving of of an easy beautiful life that didn't have pain and didn't have surprises um and the truth is you know maybe that was the hardest bitterest pill to swallow at the beginning that life's tough now that meant that I had to find some courage in all honesty I was so full of fear um, and that was the real thread throughout my life, fear and anxiety. So running away from things. Now, uh, there's a beautiful prayer. It's called the serenity prayer. Um, and we say that in recovery. You know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, the wisdom comes over time. So as you said, every time that there's something that's difficult, 
or tumultuous in my life, if I can get through that, well, I've, I've prevailed. That, that's amazing. I've prevailed. And actually, I've learned a lesson about myself and about the world that actually I can cope with these things. So, of, of course, it's difficult and we have to do that. So an, another example is, is that now how, how can you help somebody and train them to deal with grief? Gosh, gosh, you, I don't think you can. I think that, that it's about your attitude and about how you feel in yourself. But, but at the moments where in your life the chips are down, and you're feeling alone and lonely, um, you can turn to two things really. Well, I mean, if you have a, a religious God, you can turn to God. Having a faith helps. Um, you can turn to other people. You know, talking is the greatest, greatest gift. Uh, I remember growing up that my mother used to say, you know, David, a problem shared is a problem halved. And I used to think, I, I don't know how that works. Well, what on earth does that mean? So I sort of give half of my problem to you, Amory. Um, no, it's actually, um, if you're like me with an overthinking mind, talking about something, it's like there's a hundred permutations in my head. And when I cherry pick one and speak about it, the other 99 disappear. Mm -hmm. So now I'm not overthinking. And then we can have a talk about it and I can get some help. And then there's the honesty and the humility mm -hmm. and actually reaching out to somebody to say, I'm in pain. I can be honest, I I'm in pain. Um, somebody's died in the family and, I and, and I'm suffering. And people, gosh, people want to help. Mm -hmm. And I think that the act of talking about it and seeking out help, you know, it, it's, that's a learned behavior. You know, if you're not somebody who can admit a weakness because they think it's being weak, well, well it's not, it's, it's, that's where the strength is. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we all have weaknesses, but admitting that at, at a significant time and finding somebody who can support and help you, um, you know, we have to find the right person. Not everyone can be supportive and helpful. Yeah. But I think, in all honesty, I, I think it's about it's about talking. That's probably the number one thing I can suggest to anybody who's going through anything that's difficult in life. And we will have difficult things. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that you can cope. You can prevail. The, the chapters aren't written in your life. It's not over and it's not finished. Who you are today isn't who you have to be forever. Um, you know, that positive spiral I talked about, that, that's something that, that's really in me, you know, the gratitude that I've got for being alive and being free. Um, you know, it, it's very real and it's available to everybody. I think it begins with asking for help and talking. I, I really believe that. Um, and asking for help and talking, not over drinks with someone else who's sort of not... <laughs> right? Yes. A lot of people think that's yes. a form of therapy. I mean, I know I did. It's like, oh, well, we just had two bottles of wine last night and we talked about everything. Why don't I feel better uh, today? Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that's, that's drowning your sorrows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and, and of course that only ever postpones things because you're not really getting to the root of it and talking it out and, and getting some help with that. Mm -hmm. And lots of us in, in recovery, maybe dealing with some deep-rooted problems. Um, you know, there's, there's the question about chicken and egg, uh, mental health problems, did they come first and then drinking, or is it the other way around? Mm -hmm. Well, look, they're inextricably in, involved. And whether there's some deep-rooted childhood trauma or anxiety or depression or, you know, the truth is, as, as difficult it is to, to admit, you're better off tackling those things head on. Mm -hmm. And that does take courage. That really takes courage. Mm -hmm. um, but I think if, if deep down you, you might recognize that there's a hole in your soul or that you're not, 
you know, you're not right, you're not happy and things don't, aren't quite right for you. You know, that, that's where you really got to look at yourself and say, actually, I think I need some help. Yeah. I think I need to speak to somebody professional. Um, yeah. And that's a beautiful thing to do that because there really is, there's so much help available. There's this impression that it's, it's harder for men, like men are struggling in silence because they can't speak about their feelings more. Do you, how, where, do you, where do you feel about that? How do you feel about that now? I guess I can only talk about it from the male perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult for me to compare. Yeah. Is it harder for women or harder for it's men? It's harder for I'm everyone, man. right? Like, I think there yeah. is this male bravado, toxic masculinity, but I don't, I, I, if I, I'm asking you the question, but I'm also saying, I don't think it's easy for anyone to talk about it. No. Like, no, no. So, so, so let, let's, let's just talk about that. So let's Im- imagine about who, who might suffer from addiction or suffer from problems. Well, we all do. Mm. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman or what your religion or your culture is, your sex, your age, your job. It, 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 it's irrelevant, which is why, you know, there's no bigger problem in Dubai as there is in the USA or, or anything. You know, there might be some local, um, local nuances um, because of geography and, and big cities or whatever. But, you know, we're all human beings. And actually, we're all tackling the same stuff. Mm-hmm. All of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all grow up and, and have to deal with life's problems. Um, so I think if, if you're part of, of the alpha male set and you're a professional rugby player, is it more difficult possibly to talk with your rugby pals? Well, then find somebody else. You know, there's, there's help available. Um, but I, I do think you're, you are right. It, it's, it's tough for everybody. It's tough for everybody. We don't know what it's like for anyone else, right? Well, that's, that's the great, that's the human experience. We think it's easier. Yeah. We always think it's easier for everyone else than for us. So, yeah, um, no, I, yeah, sorry. No, you're right. Go um, sorry. So, uh, obviously, if you're setting up this business, you feel like there's this need here. What What's your sense of UAE and Dubai and the situation with addiction? Okay. That's, it's a really good question. I mean, the question is, why, why did I come here? Um, well, I'd had a successful business and, and I'd been coming here for about 20 years. So I think there was always an affinity I'd liked coming here. Um, and I'd been working in the UK. I, I was lucky enough to, to volunteer and work in the rehab that, that's helped save my life. Okay. I spent two, three years working with them. And I think it just felt natural for me to want to come over here where it's a little bit different. Um, I don't think it's as mature. Um, you know, so for example, you know, we're only talking about a really new nation, a really new country that that's still growing and building. And um, and I think that I think that I thought that there was maybe a place for me here. So I think it's important that anyone understands I didn't come to Dubai because I think that they've got bigger problems. I think that the truth is is that where there are human beings, there is addiction. Um, and genuinely, this might be difficult for other people to understand. I felt a yearning, a calling and, and a pull to come here. I can't explain that. Um, I really struggled to articulate that, but there was a bit of a calling for me to, to come here. And um, and that's a sort of why I'm here, really. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Do you feel that you were more able to pay attention to those sorts of things now that you're not drinking and doing drugs? Like, is it, are you more in tune with those subtle things that you can't really explain oh gosh gosh that's that's a great way of putting it of course isn't isn't everything isn't life subtle human beings the subtleties of of human beings and our thinking and our feelings so a great example of of that was that you know I I drank to blot out my feelings Mm -hmm. um I didn't want to feel those feelings 
And I did that for a very long time. So learning to go on the journey of understanding and articulating those feelings uh, and feeling those feelings. Now, um, we say in recovery, the good thing about recovery is that you get your feelings back. And the bad thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. <laughs> um, so you're absolutely right. The little subtleties, well, I'm now more in tune to that. And also, I think, look, I think I'm more reliable and more trustworthy. So when I get a feeling that, you know what, I feel my path is over there. Yeah. It's not based on anything crazy and malevolent. Right, right. Or running from something or fear. Yeah. yeah. That's lovely. Okay. Yes, it actually, so I was just going to say there's a, there's a good point. In recovery, we talk about um, uh, addicts do something called a geography, which is sometimes we run away and we think, you know what, I'm going to move to Australia because my life will be better. Um, actually, uh, I have a, a gambling client who, who literally moved here because he thought there's no gambling here. Mm. You know, there's no betting shops. So we call it doing a geography. So you move somewhere else, but of course the problem's you and you bring you with you. Um, so no, I didn't do a geography. Okay, you didn't hear over that. You do a you, you're yeah. here, you can't gamble, but maybe you pick up one other problem, right? It just shifts, it just shifts. Yeah. So, so the term sober coach does get a little bit of like ribbing sort of in films and television. It's like something, you know, like, uh, like celebrities have a sober coach. But what does a sober coach actually do and how can the average person sort of use your services? Okay. I, I think a sober coach is somebody, um, look, who, who's been on the journey before you. You know, so, so we're somebody who's got all the signposts in our pockets and we can take you on a journey of recovery. So I, I run a 13-week program because that's how long, A, it takes to get some significant change. And B, there's, there's quite a lot of work to do. Um, it's a shame about the ribbing, but I think that that's the point where we don't know what we don't know. <laughs> you know, you don't. Um, we've all tried, if you're like me, you, you've tried everything to get sober. Um, you know, quitting on your own, hypnotherapy, seeing a psychiatrist and, and all those things. And then I think eventually you come to realize is that it's a we thing. You know, mm. recovery is about we and it's one addict helping another addict. So um, I think I said to somebody the other day that, you know, I've, I've come to Dubai not to, to make waves. I've come to hold hands. And that's really what I want to do. So you work specifically on a one to one. Uh, we can do it online. I, I, I did lots of recovery work with people during COVID, of course. So you can do recovery over Zoom, but it's a lot, it's a lot more helpful if you, can, if you can do it in person. So you work specifically with somebody who takes you on a journey and, it, and it's a documented path uh, that's repeatable, reliable, dependable. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I do. I, I will take somebody and say, all I require from you is the HOW. Can you be honest? Can you be open-minded and are you willing? Because there might be some concepts in there that you don't naturally like. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things uh, that's really important is to understand about gratitude. Um, I mean, I never had any gratitude at all in my life. I wasn't grateful for anything. Um, and I think I felt a victim. Uh, honestly, even though I had this huge success and money and a beautiful wife and family, I, I was still a victim. Um, and we say that um, happy people don't become grateful. It's grateful people who become happy. So I want people to start on the journey very easily. Uh, you know, we start with easy things. Please write a gratitude list every night. And you might think, well, what's the point of that? No, just go with it. I just need you to be willing, okay? And be open-minded that there's, there's a reason for doing this. And the, of course, the truth is, is that you begin to document in real terms what you're grateful for. And then that actually means that 
there's repeated things in your list. You know, I'm so grateful for my wife. Without my wife, Christine, I would be dead. She's amazing that she's held my hand and gone on, on the recovery journey with me because I made her very ill. So without Christina, so she's always top of my list. And of course, then sometimes when there are the chips are down and today is a bit pants, I think, do you know what? That's just happened, but gosh, I've got all these things. That actually is insignificant to the things that I've got. So very quickly, you can realize, you know, it's okay. Okay, so the car's just broken down. It's a car. It doesn't matter. My world's not going to end. And it's, you know, and I think so you go through the journey of those things. It's really important to, to be open-minded and willing to do these things. And then so, you can change. Do you ever get a client and then get rid of them? Because they're not those things. They're lying or they're drinking or they're like, what do you do when that happens? Yeah, I say, I'm afraid I can't work with you anymore. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. We, 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 we sign a, a contract of sorts. So um, it's not a contract in the legal sense. It, it's a document that they promise to do some certain things. Um, so it's really a promise to them. I don't sign it. It's their promise to themselves. Yeah. And one of the promises is, is that they stay clean and sober. I absolutely can't help anyone who, who continues to drink. It's impossible. Okay. And, and I think, unfortunately, it means that that person's not got to the end of their road yet. Mm -hmm. And, and I really can't help somebody like that. I can't help people who, who don't want to be helped. And that is the great mystery, isn't it? When are <laughs> you ready? Like I've heard so many, you know, in all realms, drinking, poor health, poor habits, emotional. I've heard, I've, you, no one ever really knows. Like I heard a doctor the other day saying, I've thought about this more than anything else. And it's just when, mm. you know, they talk about rock bottom, but that's not even it. It doesn't always have to be rock bottom for people to change their life. Do you have any idea? No, no, no. Do you have any idea what it is that makes a human ready? Yes, yeah, I think I do because it's something that I've wrestled with too. Because people ask you and you want to come up with oh a nice snappy answer, <laughs> but there isn't. Of course, there there isn't an answer which is that if it looks like this and it's a Tuesday, uh, you've you've surrendered. For me, it's about the the act of surrender, and I think that the moments of these rock bottoms. Now, I had several rock bottoms. And what I found in my personal journey was that each rock bottom had a trap door and I would fall through that one to another rock bottom. So they got worse and worse and worse. And I think, unfortunately, it's only when the consequences of your um, you know, substance abuse or, or behavioral disorder gets to the point where you said, I've had enough. You, you know, um, my wife couldn't tell me. Uh, no, I couldn't get sober for my children. I couldn't get sober after I came out of hospital, after nearly dying. You know, the next day I was drinking again. It's, it's completely within. Um, but I think it's mostly about mindset, actually. So the setting of my mind was like it was for 40 years. And it was only when I was entirely willing to change my mindset, which meant go to any lengths. So the good test is that, um, you know, if you're working with me or let's say you go to the rooms of AA, and you're asked to do the following things. You know, if you're struggling with that, or you're cherry picking, or you're deciding, well, I'm willing to do that, but I'm not willing to do that. I'd suggest you haven't, you haven't surrendered yet. Mm -hmm. You know, the act of surrender, we, we drop hands. And when you drop hands, your head falls. And that's the humility of I'm, I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, when somebody is in front of you and honestly says, I'm done, because I know that if I carry on, I'll be dead next week. I think that's a pretty strong indicator that you think, yeah, I think there might be done actually. But even I don't know. Okay. You know, people relapse and pick up after 25 years. Yeah. 
it's always there. Well, thank yeah. you so much for explaining all this. And if people want to get in touch with you, it's sobercoach.ae that they- uh, uh, David, uh, well, sober.ae. Sober.ae, great website. Yes. Sober.ae, love yeah. it. Okay. Bless you. <laughs> thank you so much, David. You're doing great work. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Lovely to talk with you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.